Good day, everyone. I do hope that you all enjoyed the holidays, or at least that you got some time to slow down for a bit and just reflect upon the year 2021, which has now gone down in history. Thanking God for His mercies. And also, importantly, that you had some time to relax and hopefully enjoy the company of family and friends with some pleasant conversation, I would imagine. You know, we're social beings, so this is quite important for us too. Well, we've come to part four of our studies in Daniel chapter 7, and since we're getting deeper into things, I think it is necessary for me to re-emphasize one very important point concerning the studies we're engaged in. It might seem at times that some of the things that we're discussing might not be relevant to you, but understand this, dear friends that it is very important that we grasp how things have been happening down through history so that when we get to our time, we can understand what's going to be happening in our time and what is soon to come. God doesn't waste his time and neither does he waste our time either. So if God saw the need to inspire his prophets with revelations of urgent matters that will be taking place on the earth, coming all the way down through human history to the return of Jesus Christ, then it must be for a very valid reason. It must be that at some point in time, it will apply to us. So he is preparing us for something. But how do we know for sure what is to be and what we are going to have to face? And even more importantly, how do we prepare for it? Especially in an environment where you have so many different voices One person saying this, another person saying that. You know, just a multitude of voices, each having a different take on things. Everyone having a different story, a conflicting story. How do you know what is truth? How do you know what voice to listen to and what to expect? There's only one way, dear friends. We have to go back to what God has given and trace it step by step down the line because the Bible gives us an unbroken line of history all the way down to the present. This is how you will come to recognize where you are and understand what to expect hereafter. In the Bible, we often see a regular pattern of how people are often brought to an understanding of truth which was hidden from their eyes. For example, After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, some of his followers, not knowing that he was resurrected, they were getting discouraged and ready to give up their hope. In Luke 24, we read about two men on the road to a place called Emmaus, who were quite saddened and discouraged and distraught by the crucifixion. They had given up hope. They were saying, we thought that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. They had lost all hope. But Jesus joined them in their walk without them knowing who he was. And his words to them were in Luke 24 verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, If you had understood what the prophets had written, then you would not be discouraged and given up hope right now. But notice the next statement, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Interesting. 
So we see that in order to get them to the place where they could really understand what is going on and restore and revive their faith, what did he do? He went to the writings of the prophets and he traced their prophecies down to the present time in that day and thus gave them a full and solid understanding so that they could run back seven and a half miles to Jerusalem that night to tell their other discouraged brethren that indeed the Messiah was risen. Peter did the very same thing in Acts chapter 2. When he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he went back to what was written by the prophets and he traced their fulfillment down to the present event taking place in his day. And 3,000 people gave their heart to the Lord and were baptized in that one day. Stephen used the same strategy in Acts chapter 7. And the Apostle Paul used the same method in Acts chapter 13 to bring the believers to a place of certainty in their understanding of the truth that they desperately needed to hear and to know. So based on the biblical precedent which we see over and over again, this is the approach we are taking, dear listeners, as this is the most effective way to get a proper understanding of the scriptures so that the conclusions arrived at are not just things concocted, not just some figment of someone's imagination, but rather it must flow from the continuing narrative of scripture, clearly understood and properly interpreted, scripture upon scripture, line upon line, as the prophet Isaiah tells us. And thus your faith will be established on a solid foundation of truth which cannot be shaken and your eyes wide open to any deception that the enemy can come with. And so we're taking our time and we're working our way through and showing these things because, you know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9, What has been is what will be. And what has been done in the past is what will be done again, because there is no new thing under the sun. So it is important to know what has been so we can know what will be, because history repeats itself. All right, having said that, let's go pick up where we left off in Daniel chapter 7. Recapping from last week, you know, in a nutshell, we saw that when the Roman political or the civil empire of Rome was beginning to collapse, it came under multiple invasions and was eventually divided up into ten nations, as represented as the ten horns on the head of the great and terrible fourth beast that Daniel saw in vision. The beast represented the four world empires to arise, and the ten horns that grew out of the head of the fourth beast represented the fact that. The Roman Empire, the fourth one, would eventually fragment or be divided into ten individual nations. There were desperate measures taken to try to hold the empire together. But as matters got worse, it was decided to use the religion of the empire as a means of trying to reunite the empire. The reason being that among the ten divisions of the empire, one common denominator that they had was that they held similar religious beliefs in certain areas. So, it was decided that the Bishop of Rome would take the former seat of the Caesars in the Vatican of Rome 
And from there, the religion of Rome would be used as the unifying force, using religion as the tool to glue the empire back together. But there was opposition by three of the nations, and subsequently they ended up at war, and these three nations which opposed this move were wiped out. As we showed last week, the Bible states that when the Roman religious power called the Little Horn rose to power, it would uproot or eliminate three of the ten powers before it, the ten horns before it. I did say also last week that the seven remaining horns of our nations represent the seven nations of modern Europe, giving the names that they were called then and the names that they are known by today. Now, after the Roman religious power rose to its height, it would become the dominant power structure in the world, even as the political arm faded into the background. The religious arm of Rome would rise to the forefront, eventually dominating over the nations of Europe and much later on, the nations of the world. Now, one of the first things the bishop did, the bishop of Rome, was even while it was still fighting opposition to its rise to power, it formed an alliance with the king of the Franks, which later came to be known as France. The Franks were the most powerful of these nations at that time, and Clovis was the name of its king. So in 508 AD, the Roman bishop enlisted the French king Clovis, who was a staunch convert to Catholicism, and used his military might to subdue other tribes and nations, forcing them to convert to the Catholic religion. Their motto was, Accept our religion, or off with your head. Accept the Catholic faith, or we destroy your nation. In other words, baptize or die. Baptize or off with your head. Now, from time to time, armies were mobilized from Europe, which headed east to conquer other nations with the sword, using the name of God as the reason for doing this. Now, these military conquests were called Christian Crusades because the church claimed to be representing Christ. And so these wars were carried out under the banner of conquering the world for Christ. But this had nothing to do with Christ or God's kingdom. It had to do with human lust and greed for power and dominion the satanic conquest to conquer and destroy. But those wars were called Christian crusades, were called crusades in those days. And this is why today you will hear of churches having crusades, preaching the gospel to win souls to the kingdom of God. And nothing is wrong with that, but many do not realize that this is where the word comes from. In its original usage, it had nothing to do with the kingdom of God or Christ but just using religion as a cloak of imperial power, using God's name to cover human greed and struggle for power, and millions of murders and tortures were done in the name of God by this false religious system using the power of the armies of Europe. Now back then, Arabs were groups of nomads, disorganized and wanderers in the deserts of the East. But they were eventually enlisted and organized into a fighting force, which became quite formidable 
with the agreement that they would be used to capture Jerusalem and turn it over to the Pope of Rome. There is much history behind this that I cannot get into right now. This goes into even the formation and the development of the whole Muslim religion and Muhammad and all of that, all of this. There is much information, much detail in this, but we won't go into all of this. It's not the scope of these studies. But this is why in the early 7th century, eventually the Muslims captured Jerusalem and they changed their minds. They reneged on the agreement to give it over to the Pope, deciding to hold it as their own instead because they said Abraham is our father too. So they refused to give control of Jerusalem, give it over to the Pope. And this resulted in more wars now between the armies of Europe under the Pope now fighting against the Muslim nations. So there was much wars in that time when the Little Horn religious power started using the power of the sword under the kings of Europe to try to conquer the other nations. In the Bible, there are seven different prophecies which show that when the Roman church came to power, it would wield its tyrannical power over the nations of Europe for 1260 years until its power will be partially broken. The scripture says after 1260 years, the beast would be wounded. It later on says but the wound will be healed after a time meaning it will grow back to power again, regain its strength, and do the very same things that it did in the past. Maybe one of these days in a future study, we might show those seven texts in scripture which shows that the papacy would reign for 1260 years and then be broken, lose its power, be wounded after this period, and then to regain its strength, come back to power, and on a worldwide scale do what it was doing before, and worse, much worse. Now, the Roman Church officially came to power in 538 AD, as we've said in many previous studies. And it came to power after eliminating all its opposition, the three nations that opposed its rise. And it reigned over Europe until 1798, exactly 1260 years as the Bible said it would. But then exactly as predicted, 1260 years after it came to power, to the very date, on the 10th of February 1798, the army of Napoleon invaded the Vatican and the reigning Pope, Pope Pius VI, was taken captive and he died in exile. Much of their territory and their lands were confiscated. The power was broken. The beast was wounded. But as the Bible says, only temporarily. Because the Bible also says its wound would eventually be healed, Revelation 13. And that it would regain its power and dominance over the nations coming down to the end of time. Now in the last few minutes, I just gave a whole long period of history in a nutshell. But that is not really what I'm after. That was just to kind of give an overview of the big picture. What's important now is to go to the last few verses of Daniel chapter 7 and focus on one verse for the rest of this presentation. Maybe just a part of one verse for now. And that verse is verse 25. 
Speaking of this little horn power, which grew out of the earlier Roman Empire, we are speaking of the system of religion which the world today knows as Catholicism or Roman Catholicism. The Bible gives about 66 identifying marks of the system of Antichrist. And every single one of them, without exception, point to this one power which developed out of Rome. The Roman religion of pagan sun worship dressed up as Christianity. And that is why, as I mentioned a few studies back, that all the reformers during the 16th century knew who the Antichrist was. And they knew it how? By studying the Bible, they discovered who it was. There is no other entity in history that all the identifying marks point to. Because God wants all to be absolutely sure of this matter. Now, speaking of this religious system called the little horn, the prophet continues, Daniel 7.25, He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, that's a mysterious statement there at the end, which we'll have to get into another time. But let's analyze first part of this verse. He shall speak great words against the Most High. Other versions translate this more accurately as, for example, the contemporary English version. Other versions translate this more accurately. For example, the contemporary English version says, This king, this power, will speak evil of God Most High, and he will be cruel to the true saints of God. He will try to change God's laws and God's times. Others tell you he will speak blasphemies against God. Now, there are different ways by which someone can commit blasphemy against God. And we will touch on just two examples from the Bible. At one time, when Jesus was surrounded by crowds of people, a crippled man was brought before him. The man had to be carried by those who brought him. And they truly believed in the goodness and power of Jesus as Lord and Master to heal this man. Reading from Luke 5 verses 20 to 21, it says, And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we know that Jesus has the power to forgive our sins because, as the Bible says, he is God manifested in the flesh, Galatians 3.16. He is God with us, Matthew 1 verse 23. He is God who became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 verse 1 and verse 14. So, all the divine powers and rights and prerogatives naturally are his. So the Jews were falsely accusing Jesus of blasphemy when he forgave the man's sins. If Jesus had committed blasphemy, then he could not be our Savior. He would have become a sinner just like those he came to save. So this was a wrongful accusation because they did not believe in him and they hated him and they wanted a reason to kill him. But even from their false accusation, we can learn one thing, and it is this. For anyone who is not God 
to claim to be able to forgive sins is taking upon themselves the prerogatives that belong to God. This means putting themselves in the place of God and therefore that is blasphemy. Their statement was, who is this that speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? So only God is able to forgive sins and thus Jesus can forgive our sins. But anyone who claims to be able to forgive sins blasphemes against God. Now, reading two quotes from two official publications of the Catholic Church. Number one, the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 12, page 265. It says, The judicial authority of the Church includes the power to forgive sins. Let me repeat. It says, the judicial authority of the church includes the power to forgive sins. Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 12, page 265. In other words, this religious system, which the Bible shows would come out of the Roman Empire and blaspheme the name of God, not only claims divine rights that belong only to God, but every day has millions of people over the world going to its priests to confess their sins, going to sinful men like themselves who claim to forgive their sins. Again, from another quote, this is from the book The Catholic Priest, page 78, another official publication of the Catholic Church. It says, Seek where you will through heaven and earth, and you will find one created being who can forgive the sinner, who can free him from the chains of hell. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Roman Catholic priest, end of quote. So we see here another example of claiming powers and rights that belong to God by a human system of sinful beings putting themselves in the place of God. Another example of blasphemy, John 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, I and my father are one. Then it tells us that the Jews, they took up stones to kill him when he said that. Then Jesus said, why do you want to kill me? All I've done is good works. Then verse 33 of John 10 reads, The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because you being a man are making yourself God. So again, they were wrong in their accusation because they denied his divinity. And yet we can learn one thing from all this, and that is that for any ordinary human being to claim to be God is blasphemy. And the Roman church has always claimed that it is in the position of God on earth. For example, reading from the Catholic National, written July 1895, this is another official publication of the Catholic church. It says, Thou art a priest forever, says the ordinary bishop. He is no longer a man, a sinful child of Adam, but an altar Christus, another Christ, forever a priest of the Most High with power over the Almighty. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. End of quote. Catholic National, July 1895. These are not simple claims, dear listener. These are an effrontery in the face of God. These are statements of men putting themselves in the place of God. 
Another quotation from this book called Dignities and Duties of the Priest, Volume 12, page 27, another official publication of the Catholic Church. It says, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. In other words, God has to do what the priest say. If the priest decides to forgive sins, God has to forgive it. And the priest decides that he is not forgiving somebody's sins, God cannot forgive it. That is what that statement is saying. Another quotation in the book on the authority of councils, volume 2, page 266, another official Catholic publication. It says, All names which in the scriptures are applied to Christ, by virtue of which it is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. End of quote. Another quotation from the decree of Pope Leo XII from the book Rome as it is, page 180. It says, Given in Rome from our palace, the 10th of February 1817, the 14th jurisdiction of our most holy pontiff and father in Christ and our Lord, our God, the Pope Leo XII. End of quote. This is from another Catholic publication, official source. Let me just give one more. This is from the great encyclical letters of Leo XII, dated June 20, 1894. It says, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. End of quote. Now, notice, dear listener, that all these quotations are from the horse's mouth. None of them are taken from another source or another organization writing about the Catholic Church. No. All are quoted from official publications of the Catholic Church. And I have made sure to give you the references so that anyone who wants to check these out can verify them for themselves that these are so. So, speaking of this little horn, which came to power by uprooting three of the earlier nations of Europe, the prophet says it will be a religious system that blasphemes against God. In other words, it will put itself in the place of God, as God over the people of earth. The Apostle Paul writing about this power of Antichrist that would develop in the earth after his time said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he writes, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, in other words, the day of the coming of Christ, he says, it will not come before the rebellion comes first, the apostasy comes first, the falling away takes place. And the man of sin, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, in other words, the son of destruction. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, who opposes and exalts himself against everything and above everything that is called God, so that he sits as God over the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And as shown last week, the word temple here does not mean a building. It, it comes from the word neos in the Greek. It means sitting over the people, over the churches of the world, claiming to be head over all the churches, 
claiming to be God to the churches, claiming to be the, the head of Christian churches. The one whose dictates must be obeyed. A few verses later, the apostle writes in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 8 to 10, he says, And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose works are according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceptions of unrighteousness in those who perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10 But so far we have only touched on the tip of the iceberg of what this religious power will do in the world. Because back to Daniel 7 verse 25, it also says, It shall persecute the people of God and think to change God's times and God's laws. We will hear again from its own admissions in the upcoming study and show how these have been also fulfilled and are and will be also fulfilled. Plans are even right now in place, dear listener, to bring about the final fulfillment of these things. God's word cannot lie, but the end is in sight. Verse 26 says, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. So, dear friends, be encouraged. Be strong, be courageous and faithful. As we said last week, in the end, the people of the Most High shall inherit the everlasting kingdom of glory, promised to all who faithfully endure to the end. Until next week, be blessed and keep trusting in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Him, your future is safe. Love you all. <music>